0: and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. For the past five years or so, the term deconstruction has become quite familiar in evangelical circles and is used to describe a process as varied as the people who experience it but it largely revolves around questioning tenets of faith. For some, it can mean leaving a particular church, and for others, it's a process of understanding their faith in a different way or leaving religion altogether. Brad Jursek is a frequent guest to the Restoring the Soul podcast and is joining Michael for the next two episodes as they discuss Brad's latest book, Out of the Embers. Faith After the Great Deconstruction. In the book, Brad explores the necessity, perils, and possibilities of the Great Deconstruction, how it has the potential to either sabotage our communion with God or infuse it with the breath of life, the light and life of Christ himself. Stay tuned as Brad shares a fascinating look back at his own spiritual journey and the ramifications deconstruction had on his ministry and his personal relationships. So now without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Dr.
1: Brad Jurcic, I want to welcome you back to the Restoring the Soul podcast. Glad you're here.
2: Thanks for having me. I so miss you and this is it's great to reconnect. And in fact, I got to turn my phone off. There not we go. a problem.
1: I need to turn my pacemaker off, uh, <laughs> but not really. People who have not listened to your previous two or three times, you've been on the Restoring the Soul podcast once talking about Centering Prayer, a great conversation we had when you were live here in the studio when you were part of one of our Restoring the Soul weekends. And then also, I think the very first time I talked to you, that turned into multiple episodes, and those have been super popular. But today, I'm very excited for your new book, Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. The title alone is worthy of an hour-long conversation, but this book seems to me to be kind of the culmination of your work and life so far. Uh, But it really starts with your story of, as you said, your life unraveling as a pastor and in your faith. Start for our listeners and just share a little bit about the personal aspect of this subject for you.
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I I happen to believe that this all too trendy word deconstruction, it, it describes quite a complex of, of experiences. And that's true, not only of different people, but in me. And so, Prior to 2008, I had gone through a long period of a kind of positive deconstruction where I was dismantling constructs of God that were nasty and coming into a very liberating revelation of that God is love revealed in Jesus. You know, that's, That should be uh, something obvious to us, but really I needed to dismantle those elements of my image of God that were harming me and uh, shaming me and driving me and actually probably driving addiction. But overall, that kind of experience was super liberating. And I also had the good fortune of having a community that was walking it with me instead of resisting it in me. And so instead of firing me when I started teaching what I was learning about God, um, they found it expansive. And so... I wish that was the case for others. It's not always, but I had that going for me. So I come into 2008 completely convinced now that God is good instead of this retributive, angry monster God or punishing judge. That was a conviction of mine, but we started to have these, a series of tragedies in our faith community, a lot of deaths around the kind of people we worked with, a third of our church were people with disabilities. And, and some of those had sudden and really a punch to the gut kind of departure through death that we didn't expect. And then a series of people in our addictions community had overdose deaths. And uh, we had a number of suicides. We had a gruesome murder eventually in that period we had a an abduction of one of our girls who was visiting down in guatemala like one thing after another and by the time i got to about 35 of these in a little church you know we're talking 150 people where there's 35 tragic deaths or maimings or whatever um three of our favorite intercessor women all got cancer that year i mean it was crazy and so um, you know, typical to me, why, why not take a tragedy and make it even worse? So as I began to melt down, then that's when I was started acting out in a love addiction and crossing boundaries with dear friends and ruining relationships. And I came to a point where I, I was in such deep shame about this, um, but the, that uh, I was willing to start getting help through 12-step recovery. I started work with a spiritual director. I had a mentor who tucked me under his wing and a wife who was supernaturally gracious. Not only did she she care for me but she became she took my place as pastor in the church at the at the board's request to walk them through the healing journey of all this trauma. I've only just thought of this as we came online. The deconstruction I experienced in in that negative sense in in the uh my faith unraveling sense was made worse because I had believed God is good finally, you know, Mm -hmm. if I had still believed he's a punitive monster, then all the stuff that happened would have made sense to me. But now that I know that he's good and only good, it was so bewildering that for a while I didn't know if I could trust him. And if, if that's the case, I didn't, I didn't know why to keep living. And so that's some of the trauma that happened that I think, the whole deconstruction industry has become too happy-clappy and evangelical, frankly. The ex-evangelicals have just got a new conversion story. And I think what we need is actually the first order of business is empathy for the traumatized. And, and secondary trauma also, not only, let's say they leave their church because there was some trauma there. But now they get the second trauma of being isolated or alienated and not knowing who to connect with. So that's that's a summary so far. Of my messy memoir.
1: <laughs> Thank you for all of that. And I think that there's a lot of elements of what you shared that some listeners can relate to. And I think what you highlighted for me in the book and even now is how much pain is underneath deconstruction. And I too sometimes resist the word deconstruction, I bristle at it. And I think you used, you said, uh, I believe in deconstruction, but I use the term advisedly. Yeah, and and
2: with a twitch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the great, great majority of the time, this is not people that are being um, intellectually rebellious or somehow trying to be problematic, trying to create a new movement, but they're people that are in pain, and that's obvious with you, not just trauma, but a kind of existential pain. And I recall reading some references in the book where you said, I did not want to live, and thoughts of I can't get out of bed, I can't function. And it's so interesting to me that chapters and chunks of the, your thinking about this topic are from some of the great existential thinkers like Kierkegaard and you have a chap two chapters on Nietzsche, which is interesting because of course he was an atheist or an agnostic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yet can tremendously <coughs> inform us about some of these existential questions. So, Brad, the obvious question, and if you can maybe just give a thumbnail on this, because the book fleshes it out, and I'm hoping some of the big ideas that we discuss will help to flesh this out. But how did you get from that place of an existential despair or near despair of, I don't want to live in addiction and having to leave the ministry to a place where you write a book about faith after deconstruction.
2: Yeah, well, um, it's called out of the embers for a reason. And I uh, maybe a good word for that is that the kind of faith I'm talking about is quite a gift. It is inexplicable. It is an act of grace from above. And so in my case, what that looked like was, um, I think of it like when the bulldozer came over and scraped me down to to rock bottom. What shocked me was that I could make the confession that God is good. I I'm like, why would I even say that or believe that? But there it is. It just is. And I could only regard that as a grace gift. But then that had a follow up question. If God is good, then my question was, does God care? And I can't I, I don't care if he has a caring heart sitting on a throne watching our tragedies. That's not care in my mind. I'm thinking about the caregivers who work with the people with disabilities who are quadriplegics and who need to be spoon-fed and adult diaper changes. I need that kind of caregiver. And it was through seeing my spiritual director, Steve Imbach, over the course of 10 years that I went from God as good as this pure Um, kind of inexplicable gift to seeing some ways in real life through people largely, but also inner work in my heart, that God actually is a divine caregiver, despite the tragedies we, we can pull out, we can pull out receipts for the tragedies and the affliction, no problem. But I experienced also God as a caregiver and that especially through a community of people who, um, who showed me mercy and in my self disqualification. Now I wouldn't have any platform worthy of, uh, you know, sharing if it weren't the idea of paying forward the mercy I received. And, um, and I also needed a new theology um, that divine care at the end of the day for severe affliction, that there's no rationalizing the problem of evil. What we have is a cross and on the cross we see absolute goodness and absolute affliction the great contradiction intersecting in that one man hanging there and so i be i was all the more completely captivated by the glorified wounds of christ and how they touch my wounds
1: and both as a human being and as a theologian you obviously had intellectual, cognitive categories for everything you just described. Yeah. But would you agree, and if not, please push back and we'll explore this. Would you agree that at the end of the day, the intellectual answers are insufficient and that we have to have some kind of encounter or experience?
2: I absolutely agree. I think that was the key to it, was coming to the end of reason. My definition of affliction, I get it from Simon Weil, is this is non-redemptive suffering that is absurd? Like, so there's no lesson in it. There's no journey in it. There, it's the toddler drowning in his grandparents' hot tub. You know, what do you do with that? And so, instances like that, or the Holocaust, today's Holocaust Remembrance Day, right? And so, it's like um, there's not an there's not a reasoned answer, and so what my the saving grace was when i uh the encounter at the cross where i look up at the one hanging there and i see i see the wounds of god i don't know that there's any worthy future for a christianity apart from direct experience of the love of god it has to be mystical. Carl uh, Rahner said this, you know, if it's not mystical, and by mystical, we don't mean airy fairy ethereal. What we mean is encountering a living God, a real connection directly.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that you wrote a sentence in your book that I, I've said for 10 years, and I've discovered that a lot of people that are deconstructing or who deconstruct, they either go, atheist or agnostic on the one hand or they end up with a kind of well i believe in love or i believe in the force or you know there's a there's a great spirit and i understand that i'm not judging that but your line that i so deeply resonated with is that i need a person i need a face i need a real living human being slash god <laughs> who is a human being in jesus to to see, to touch, to taste, to smell. And, of course, those are very sacramental, Eucharistic ideas. But it's not just enough to have an idea of a God or a belief in God when we get down to these kind of existential, psychological, ontological realities.
2: And that's probably the very nature of the best forms of deconstruction from the Christian tradition. And that is that the idea of God is never God. The idea or construct to deconstruct is to interrogate our ideas and our notions and our constructs of God, recognizing that God is always more than that. And Meister Eckhart said, you know, God, deliver me from God. And what he means is there is a, there is a there there. There is a, a, a God as such. But we need to be delivered from every um, idea of God that creates an idol or a box for him that he doesn't fit in anyway. And so sometimes the tragic is the only way that, that we'll let go of those those very um, uh, puny ideas of who God is. And then when those crack open, you might have an encounter with with the transcendence that has a face.
1: Yeah, something, someone real that is captivating and compelling. I'm not a Latin speaker, and I'm not a theologian as you are, so you're referring to what God is not. That's the via negativa or the apophatic spirituality. Yes,
2: I perceive you are a theologian.
1: Ah, Thank you, (laughs) and I, I perceive that you are a kind man. Um, I want to talk about disorientation, and I'm saying that out loud because you talk about five potential reasons for it, and I'm saying it out loud so that I won't forget when I come back, or if I do forget, I'll say, what did I forget? But I have to come back to something. This idea about the real wounds of Christ and this transcendent yet imminent face of God. Mm -hmm. I have been praying uh, for two years now. Not every day, but the Anima Christi, which is a Catholic, historic, early church prayer, and it starts out with, uh, soul of Christ be with me, blood of Christ inebriate me, and then it says, Lord Jesus, hide me within your wounds. And I have begun to take in and behold this idea that Jesus didn't just suffer 2,000 years ago. But in relation to this idea of on the cross, there was glory and ruin and that question of goodness and tragedy and suffering together, that Jesus still bears our wounds today and that he still suffers. And as I've explored this with some people, and I know there's probably books and tomes to read about it, some people have said, I've always thought that, and others have said, that's just heretical. Can you talk a little bit as a theologian and as someone who practices and lives the Orthodox Christian faith, this idea that Jesus is suffering on our behalf today, that he is in our trauma, that he's in our wounds, that he's in our suffering.
2: Yeah. Um, so the reason there's a debate, I think, is because we we are stuck in a temporal That means time bound kind of vision of what this means. Because if you, if you just think Jesus is on a timeline, right? Well, he died and then he, and then he rose again. So he's not dead anymore. Uh, he suffered. So he doesn't suffer anymore. And that now he's, um, now he's impassible, which, which doesn't mean passive, but it means he is not, he is not reactive. Um, or jerked around by our drama. He, he comes to it in, the, in a glorified state. But, but that's, that's to keep Jesus on a timeline. Here's what I think actually happens, and people can read about this in John Baer's book, The Mystery of Christ, and that is that the God-man is a union of a temporal human being and an eternal God, and in that indivisible union. The one who did in time suffer, die, and come back to life is indivisible from, from God the son. It's the one, it's one person, right? But as God the son in eternity, that means f- forever from even above time. He, uh, he, he is directly connected to every aspect of his life and yours. So in the Orthodox church at, the Feast of the Nativity, we never say Christ was born. We say Christ is born. We don't say, uh, you know, Christ was crucified. We say he is crucified. He hangs on a tree and he is not was, he is risen. So um, to an eternal God who stands outside of time, the entire incarnation is now to him. And so are you. And so that means I don't think it's, um, secondary in this sense. It's not like, well, Jesus suffered in some awful ways and, and in the past and, and you suffer in some awful ways. So he gets it and he can empathize with you. No, it's much more direct than that. He has united himself to your wounds. And so Jesus Christ can say to Paul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Me, mm. and so that means he doesn't just suffer something let's say like the sexual abuse victim he doesn't i don't have to wonder whether or not he actually suffered sexual abuse he does suffer sexual abuse in his union with you and so he's so uh, um dostoevsky you know great orthodox existentialist his the theme of his major theme of his work is co suffering love. So yeah, um, I um, it's not like well poor Jesus is crying probably because of something I did again. It's no he he has made himself one with me in a way that he endures what I endure and takes all that darkness up into himself, but also um, brings it into direct contact with healing light and love.
1: Thank you for explaining that so clearly. It brings me to tears because um, about almost 20 years ago, in the midst of some deep trauma, I had a vision where the vision was Jesus replaced me being abused to him being abused. And he didn't say what it was. It was a deep experience that led me to weeping and crying out and opening my heart. But it was, it was very clear that that was like the exchange. And the scripture that I found myself drawn to for a long time after that was Isaiah 53, which wasn't about punishment, as we typically think about that, that God was punishing Jesus with, I deserve to be punished, so Jesus took that on. It was about his suffering and his carrying the pain of sin and the pain of wounding. And isn't all sin? I've been wounded, so now I'm going to wound someone else. Um, I'm lacking, so I'm going to steal. I feel powerless, so I'm going to murder.
2: Yeah. So it's the it's it's those broken passions that drive the behaviors, right? And he's gone right down into that the midst of that darkness. And then you know Isaiah fifty three, he bears it. He yes. bears all our
1: sins and all our sorrows. Yeah. In a way that transfigures them. And. I don't want to sound hyperbolic, but this is a secret truth, it seems, that if this was preached, it would be like the answer to theodicy, like how can God allow suffering? Well, he's in the suffering. My PTSD is his PTSD. Those disabled people in your church that Jesus was suffering and in the wheelchair and dying with them and in your unraveling, that Jesus was unraveling. And that's what's utterly unthinkable about God, right? That's the good news that God, who's all powerful and all good, chooses as an act of love to unravel with us. Yeah,
2: and the reason why, you know, Cyril of Alexandria will say in the fifth century, he uh, addressing this idea of is he impassable or not? Yes, he is, but it me he says he suffered impassably. So the word there doesn't mean sort of like a semi-suffering, what it means is completely willing. No one took his life from him. He, he lays it down willingly in perfect surrender to his father so that he can take it up again and us up again. And so that's why we would say, no, he he enters the full depths of human suffering in an authentic way, or he's not fully human. Uh, Gregory, the theologian, said, you know, what is not assumed is not healed. So he assumed everything.
1: Say that again. Gregory who Gre- said –
2: Gregory, the theologian, or he's also called Gregory of Nazianzus. And he said – he, he he's, ad- he's addressing is Christ fully human, like fully, fully human? And he said what is not assumed is not healed. So the idea is he had to assume the entirety of the human condition so that he could heal the entirety of the human condition. And so there's not one aspect of our humanity that he hasn't taken into himself and up into himself in a totalizing way at the cross. And then from th- those wounds, our wounds, uh, flows healing love and light into the world.
1: That is so compelling to my heart and to my body and my, my visceral being and so captivating, I can only imagine as I have walked through my own path of aspects of my faith and life being deconstructed, how someone in a place of despair would find real hope in this. You know, yeah. where is God? He's he's right here <laughs> in my pain. Even the despair, right? So that on the cross, Christ even says,
2: where is God? Like he has to even assume that, but in by assuming it. And then not creating a false narrative, he's able to testify, oh, he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted one. He has not turned his face from me. But he couldn't say that authentically until he felt our alienation in himself.
0: So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.